parents are being told that it's just a pause button. They're being told that it's fully reversible, which isn't even true because even if, let's say you went on puberty blockers for five years and then you went off them, that doesn't reverse five years of delayed development. It seems like virtually 100% of the children placed on puberty blockers end up transitioning. Because rather than being a pause button, it seems to function more like a lock-in button. be talking tonight about our culture's transgender moment. So our book club over on Facebook is called the Elisa Childers Book Club. And we just read the book, When Harry Became Sally, Responding to the Transgender Moment by Ryan T. Anderson. And we have really loved this book and learned so much from it. And so this book addresses many of the questions that lots of us are having to navigate as we talk through issues about gender identity, human embodiment, and really what it means to be human, human nature. So questions like, can a girl be trapped in a boy's body? Is it possible for a doctor to reassign someone's sex? Is sex something that's even assigned by a doctor or a person in the first place? So we're gonna bring Dr. Anderson on in a moment to discuss some of these questions, but we're also gonna give you the opportunity to ask him your questions as well. So if you want to ask a question on tonight's live stream, please write in all caps the word question, and we will get to as many of those as we possibly can. So I mentioned that we read this book as a part of our book club on Facebook. And we want to invite you to join the group as well. If you'd like to join our book club, you can go to facebook.com slash groups slash Elisa Childers Book Club to request membership. Now, this is a group that was created basically for like-minded Christians to read and discuss some really great books. And because of that, you'll be asked to sign a statement of faith and agree to the group rules in order to join. And in the next couple of weeks, I'll be announcing in the book club group our next book selection. So if you're interested in growing in knowledge surrounding issues like theology and apologetics, check out facebook.com slash groups slash Elisa Childers Book Club. All right. Well, Ryan T. Anderson is the president of the Ethics and Public Policy Center and the founding editor of Public Discourse, which is the online journal of the Witherspoon Institute of Princeton, New Jersey. He's the author of the book that we will be discussing tonight, the book that we just read in the book club, When Harry Became Sally. So Dr. Anderson, thanks so much for joining us. Uh, our book club's been really Really excited about this conversation. So thanks for joining us. Thanks for having me. It's a pleasure to be with you guys tonight. Absolutely. Well, in the subtitle of your book, you describe what our culture is facing as uh, the transgender moment. And this is obviously a highly controversial topic, so controversial that in many cases, if someone expresses what's considered to be the wrong opinion, they may be censored. And you've experienced this personally. Uh, so some people watching and listening may not know that this book uh, was actually removed from Amazon. I knew that going in. So I was expecting when I read the book that it was going to be like really hard hitting or something like that. But it actually expresses quite a bit of care and concern and empathy for those who are experiencing gender dysphoria. So I'd love to start by talking about what happened there 
uh, with Amazon because it seems odd mm -hmm. to be living in a time and place, especially in America, where people are effectively banning books. Yeah, well, I'm, um, I mean, thanks for opening it that way because, um, I mean, it gives me a chance to say I don't write um, the type of book hoping to get banned so then I can go on like, you know, a cable news talk show and say, look, I've been censored by my book, right? Um, and, you know, there is a certain um, marketing strategy where you um, you use overheated rhetoric, you throw red meat, and the idea is that um, that's a way of selling books. There's nothing wrong with that, I guess, but that's just like not, um, you know, my approach to these issues. Um, I try to write books that you could give to a family member or a friend or a colleague at work who doesn't already agree with you um, with the hopes that it would actually change their mind. Um, you know, if you have a, a friend who's on the fence, doesn't know what they think about uh, various issues. You know, the first book I ever wrote was about the gay marriage debate. Um, then I did two books on the religious liberty debates. And then I finally, um, you know, entered into the gender identity transgender question. Um, and so it's frustrating because, you know, Amazon sold the book for three years. And then it was only um, several months ago now that they decided it violated their content policy. Um, the book hadn't changed in the intervening three years. It's not as if, you know, we went back and rewrote passages. Um, so it's unclear how it violates their content policy. It does look that the timing was suspicious. Um, Amazon removed the book uh, the Sunday afternoon before the House of Representatives was scheduled to vote on a um, on a radical uh, transgender piece of public policy, um, a bill called um, the so-called Equality Act. And you know, I've been a fairly outspoken critic of that bill because what it does is it actually erases the legal category of sex. Uh, the category of you know female and replaces it with gender identity right? people who identify as a woman or as a girl and it has all sorts of negative consequences um i mean there's probably more we could talk about you know the amazon situation the big tech situation i mean i would say the most frustrating part would be is that for people who know nothing about me or about the book they would say oh you know the book must be so objectionable that you know amazon's unwilling to sell it so it must mm -hmm. be bomb throwing it must be red meat. And then people who actually sit down and read the book, they're like, well, even if I disagreed with this, I don't put so objectionable about right. it. Yeah, well, that was definitely my impression because uh, not that, yeah, I just didn't kind of really know what to expect. I heard you speak at the Colson Center Wilberforce Weekend, and of course, I've been familiar with your work. Um, but, you know, I, I, when I'm reading this book, I, I thought this is so incredibly factual informative, very even-toned, uh, very kind-hearted, actually, and um, it just honestly such an important read. And I just want to say to everybody watching and listening, I really highly recommend this book. If you want to understand what is going on in all of these discussions about uh, gender, gender, gender identity, what it means to be human, this is the book you want to get your hands on. Um, so let's talk about gender dysphoria, because this is something that you address in your book, what is it? Give us a working definition of what that is. And then what is the current protocol for the treatment that's typically given today to someone who might experience gender dysphoria? Sure. So um, historically, the, the, the clinical term was gender identity uh, disorder. Um, and this was in the earlier editions of the DSM, the Diagnostic and Statistical Manual from the APA. And then the most recent edition, DSM-5, uh, changed the diagnosis to gender dysphoria. Um, and whereas historically, um, a gender identity um, uh, disorder was 
the idea that you have a discordant gender identity. You have a gender identity that doesn't line up with your biological sex, with biological reality. Uh, with gender dysphoria, they said, well, it's not that alone that is the disorder. It needs to be um, that coupled with um, a clinically significant form of distress. Um, so it's that you have a discordant gender identity and there is um, significant stress and distress as a result of that. Um, and, you know, when Dr. McHugh and I spoke about this, he was saying, you know, this is changing it because it used to be that it was an, you know, an objective condition based upon thoughts and feelings that didn't align with reality. Now they were saying that, you know, the primary um, concern is with the distress that that causes, which left it as a diagnosable condition, but then left open the question of what the right treatment is. Because, you know, whereas historically with the a diagnosis being that the problem is a discordant gender identity, then the treatment must help line up your gender identity with reality. Now it opened up the possibility, well, if the real problem is the distress that's caused by having a gender identity not lining up with the body, the treatment option might be transforming the body to line up with the gender identity. Um, gender identity here is understood as an internal sense of gender. Uh, so the idea here is that everyone has an internal feeling or a sense of gender, which may or may not line up with their body. Um, sex has now been referred to as sex assigned at birth, not as a inbuilt reality, a, a biological reality, but as something that was merely assigned. And therefore, doctors could reassign sex later in life. Um, the only other thing I'll say about you know gender dysphoria is that now... Um, I can't even remember if when um, the book was published, um, this study had been uh, released or not, but Lisa Lippman, a researcher at Brown University, published a paper a number of years ago, probably three or four years ago, um, where she coined the phrase rapid onset gender dysphoria. Mm. Uh, and what she was pointing out was that, you know, there seems to be something new under the sun in which gender dysphoria historically was largely a male phenomenon. Uh, it was um, little boys who felt uncomfortable uh, with their boyhood. And then it was middle-aged men. Uh, those were the two most prevalent um, uh, people who would experience gender dysphoria. She says, now we're seeing a huge explosion of high school and college age girls and women identifying as non-binary, identifying as gender fluid, identifying as boys and men with no history of gender struggles. And mm. this to her suggested this was something new. She used the phrase rapid onset gender dysphoria. And that's just important to mention because it does seem like there are different forms of um, transgender or gender non-binary identification, um, that it happens differently in boys and girls, men and women. It happens differently if you're middle age versus if you're um, a child versus if you're a teen or a 20 something. And so it's very hard to kind of even talk about um, the underlying um, condition or experience, you know, with a one size fits all uh, description, because it actually um, uh, uh, will manifest itself very differently. And I think the form that we're seeing most prevalently right now with the teenage and um, 20 something girls and women is rather different than what we had been um, familiar with, what doctors and clinicians have been familiar with. Yeah, and and that was fascinating to me. And you go into great detail in the book about what it actually means to be a man or to be a woman, what actually makes someone a man or a woman. And for, I'm sure a lot of people watching right now or listening to this, 
they might be thinking, well, it's kind of obvious what makes a man a man and a woman a woman, but there's so much more than um, just anatomy. Uh, and so I wanted you to comment on that a little bit. Is is it just biology that determines someone's gender or their sex, or is it is there something inherent in us, uh, or maybe a combination of both, that justifies using that category of male and female? Yeah, sure. Um, great question. So. Um, I mean, I think it's worth um, distinguishing kind of um, maybe like sex, gender, and then gender identity. Yeah. Um, and if you don't like the words, because I actually think that in our culture today, um, there's a good argument to be made that we should just give up on the term gender entirely um, and just only speak in terms of sex. Um, but there, I think I still think even then you would need to make a, distinct, a distinction between sex in two ways. But anyway, so here's how I would lay it out. First, there's um, the concept of sex as a bodily uh, biological reality, uh, where in you know all of mammalian species. So this is true not just for human beings, but for any um, mammalian species. Um, it's a binary. It's a sexual binary based upon how an organism is organized with respect to sexual reproduction. And there are two different ways, two complementary ways. Uh, for organisms to be organized with respect to sexual reproduction. Um, and so it's not a spectrum uh, and it's not fluid, right? So it's not as if you're, you know, somewhat male and somewhat female. It's not as if one day you're male and one day you're female, right? So it's neither uh, a spectrum nor is it fluid. There are two ways of being organized. Um, and this starts taking place at conception, right? Based upon uh, the chromosomes that you inherit uh, from your mother and your father, right? That sperm and that egg, they carry um, uh, uh, sex-determining chromosomes, X and Y. Um, those chromosomes then lead to the development of certain internal uh, reproductive organs, uh, certain external genitalia, certain secondary sex characteristics. Um, and most of this is readily discernible by week 20 on an ultrasound, right? And so sex isn't determined at birth, nor is it, uh, sorry, sex isn't assigned at birth, nor is it assigned at 20-week ultrasound. Sex is discerned, right? Mm. You can discern it, you can identify it, but you're not assigning it, right? It's an inbuilt reality based upon how we are um, sexually organized. Uh, and you can just think, you know, XX, XY, you can think about um, uh, the uh, sex cells being sperm and egg. You can think about the internal reproductive organs, the external genitalia, et cetera, et cetera. They're always uh, two, right? There's always a complementary male and female set. And that's why we think of sex as a binary, um, neither um, uh, a spectrum nor fluid. All right. So then there's a second question, which could be something like gender. Um, and so the second wave feminists um, wanted to distinguish sex from gender, saying that sex is merely the physical and the bodily and the biological, but then gender is a social construct. And so their argument was that, um, you know, gender is how cultures and societies treat boys and girls, men and women differently. It's artificial, it's constructed, and that really men and women, because they wanted to have equality, uh, which was, you know, the goal of the first wave feminists, the second wave feminists then embraced sameness, right? And so they embrace a, a form of androgynous um, uh, uh, feminism or androgynous um, equality in which um, men and women need to be interchangeable. And this is where you see lots of um, kind of like misguided uh, contemporary and 20th century notions that equality equals uh, sameness. 
it strikes me um, that there was then an overreaction with gender in which people, you know, men are from Mars, women are from Venus, you know, men and women are so different. Um, you can think um, in this context, like the, the, the title of the book, When Harry Became Sally, is intentional. It's meant to um, play off of the movie When Harry Met Sally, that men and women are so different, they can't be friends. Mm. Um, and so one of the chapters of the book, I argue that we want to avoid both extremes. We want to avoid the extreme where gender is purely a social construct and the sexes are interchangeable. And so it denies that there are sex differences that make a difference. And on the other hand, we don't want to distort those differences, right? Where we say something like, you know, men should be lawyers, but women should be secretaries. Men should be doctors, women should be nurses, right. um, et cetera, et cetera. And so the idea here is like to find what is the virtuous mean between two extremes, one extreme that denies that there are differences that make a difference, one extreme that distorts those differences. Um, and then here, you know, identify what, what are the sexual differences that make a difference when it comes to human flourishing, when it comes uh, to the human good, to the, you know, the, the telos of our embodiment as male and female. And then I just think you need to have a clear understanding of why are we embodied as male and female? Mm -hmm. um, and so it's not surprising to me that the T and the political push for the T came after the LGB part, mm. um, because the way in which we are uh, primarily embodied as male and female is to unite as one flesh in marriage. And so all of the various cultural and social practices um, that we try to cultivate are going to be navigating the trajectory of boy to man, to husband, to father, girl to woman, to wife, to mother. That's why God creates us male and female. That's why we're embodied as male and female for a vocational trajectory where we can then unite as one flesh and then assume the vocational uh, responsibilities of being a husband and being a father, being a wife and being a mother. And so what a culture, a good culture should do is to cultivate the aspects of human nature that would then allow us to experience human flourishing. And this is just true across the board. Culture cultivates. And you can think of agriculture, mm -hmm. horticulture, right? There are various forms of human ingenuity that is trying to cultivate, you know, in one case, it's the earth, right? Think of agriculture, horticulture. In another case, it's human nature. And now the last thing I'll say about this is that gender identity um, then says, oh, well, wait, the second wave feminists separated sex and gender, where they wanted to say sex was merely the bodily and gender was merely the cultural. And it was a culture that was detached from nature, so a cultural construct. The transgender ideologues want to say that your gender identity determines your sex. And so an inner sense of gender determines what your sex is. And I actually think that is entirely built on gender stereotypes. Mm -hmm. So that if you're a boy who likes Barbie in the color pink, that means you have an internal sense of being a girl and therefore you're a girl trapped in a boy's body. And therefore the treatment protocol is, you know, puberty blocking drugs and estrogen, et cetera, et cetera. That oddly, and, and perhaps not oddly, there is like a, a, a perverse logic to this, um, that the transgender worldview is actually built on a house of cards in which gender stereotypes are the foundation of yeah. so-called gender identity. And then gender identity is then being used to determine sex. And then we're transforming bodies mm. to line them up with um, an identity with respect to a stereotype, yeah. right? And the alternative is to say, no, no, there's something about nature, human nature, from a Christian perspective, 
creation in which there's an intelligibility to creation, right? mm -hmm. both through revelation and through reason, uh, through the natural law and through the divine law, we can discern and understand why we're embodied male or female, why it makes a difference for our flourishing, what meaning it has. And those aren't based on stereotypes. Those aren't based on mere cultural constructs, although we do need healthy cultures to cultivate human nature, right? I mean, so, so the last thing I'll say, and then I will <laughs> get back to you here, is that I'm not surprised that the rapid onset gender dysphoria that we're seeing right now is happening primarily with women and girls because we've never had a culture so inhospitable to authentic femininity, right? We've never had a culture where it's more difficult to be an embodied woman without being um, abused or confused or misled by the culture about what it means to be a woman and what the vocational trajectory of motherhood is, right? We've never had a culture so hostile um, to the embodied way of being human that is the female way of being yes. human, right? Our culture takes the male body as the norm, and then it treats females' bodies as somehow like defective males. Um, and so anyway, I mean, all this is to say that, like, I think there's a lot going on here, which is why, um, it, you know, it's playing out in various ways. And that, you know, that just took me, I don't know, five, 10 minutes to answer what was, you know, a rather yeah. straightforward question, because there's so much at stake. Uh, yeah. And it doesn't fit on a bumper sticker. It doesn't fit on a tweet. Um, you know, it really required, required a book length uh, treatment to, um, you know, get to the bottom of this. Yeah. And it's such a fascinating point you make about how culture sort of has made maleness or the male body even as the ideal in anything. And we see this in movies. I see this in entertainment where, uh, and in fact, I'll, I'll even joke sometimes, it's like, why aren't men protesting that they can't give birth or breastfeed babies? I mean, right. we view that almost as as inferior because the man goes to, the, you know, typically speaking, goes and, you know, tills the ground and all of this. And, and, and we've really devalued some of those feminine traits of motherhood and things like that, which it makes perfect sense now that we have just this onslaught of young girls who are dissatisfied with being female. And sadly, I think that a lot of where that's coming from is just this evolution of, of third wave and even possibly fourth wave feminism that we're seeing um, that really, I think, has gotten away from real women's rights and it has made men the standard. And, uh, and, and that's just, it's a message that we're sending to young girls that's really kind of scary. And so I thought that was a really fascinating point that you made. And it was brought out even in one of the chapters when you talk about, it's probably, in my view, maybe the most powerful chapter in your book was uh, the chapter about detransition stories. Uh, because you highlight uh, a growing movement of people who have undergone hormone replacement therapy and even surgery in some cases, and they're left with permanent changes to their bodies that they now regret. And uh, in other words, changing their bodies didn't help with their inner lives or their, their psyche. So, you know, and if that's not painful enough, when they speak up, they're being attacked and silenced by trans activists. And, and so I wanted to ask you, what about, what was it about those stories that inspired you to devote a whole chapter to it? And why, why is it so important for us to listen to those voices? Yeah, I mean, so, um, I mean, the way that I first kind of got, um, um, drawn into this question was, you know, I, um, I became friends with someone who had transitioned and then detransitioned. Um, and his story, um, once you learn it, the, 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 the individual's name is Walt Heyer. 
And, you know, Walt was um, the more typical middle-aged man who um, uh, transitioned. But it stemmed from, in his case, um, some childhood trauma that he experienced. Um, and then a lingering sense that he wasn't really a man and, you know, a sense of comfort when he cross-dressed as a woman. He got affirmation from his uh, grandmother when he uh, presented as a girl. And it never went away. He got married, he had kids. And then, you know, as a middle-aged, um, I believe he was in his 50s, he transitioned and lived, um, I believe it was for eight years, as Laura Jensen. And it was only uh, then, you know, his career fell apart, his marriage fell apart, family fell apart, um, because he actually didn't get the help that he needed. Um, like he had various emotional and psychological um, traumas that he had experienced, and he had various scars and struggles that he was wrestling with. And, you know, what the professionals did is said, oh, your solution is going to be estrogen and surgery. And those were just like band-aids, right? They, they just kind of masked the underlying issues. He was then working um, at a hospital uh, um, uh, as kind of like a, a, if I remember correctly, was like a, a physician assistant. And there was a uh, physician there who said, I think you might have a dissociative condition. And so he started seeing just an ordinary, not like a gender therapist, but just an ordinary therapist. And as that doctor started addressing the underlying kind of um, psychological conditions that then allowed him to realize he had made a mistake to detransition um to identify um as a man again you know which is what he is now of course sadly like after you've gone through various hormonal and surgical um procedures they're not always fully reversible um, right. that you know when you remove body parts you know they don't grow back etc cetera, etc cetera. um and now his story is incredibly tragic I think these stories only become um, so much more tragic when they involve children, when they involve minors. Um, and, and that's not to say that his story doesn't. His story started when he was a child, um, but you know he ultimately made that decision as a 50-year-old man. Um, I think it's, it's still tragic what happened to him and my heart breaks for Walt. But I think when you read some of the testimonies and you watch some of the videos of people who transitioned in high school and in college uh, because they didn't fit in as a high school girl. And, you know, sometimes there's sexual abuse there. Sometimes it's the hookup culture that they don't quite fit in. Sometimes it's their developing bodies, um, you know, as they start developing um, during puberty and unwanted attention and comments from males. Um, sometimes it's because of same-sex attraction and, mm -hmm. you know, an internalized form of shame or guilt. Uh, sometimes it's because of like rigid um, sex stereotypes. Right, where, where you know yeah. I'm not the all-American girl, and people are expecting me to be the all-American girl. People are expecting me to be Barbie. Right, so there's a variety of different ways, and and, and that's just a caution to say that we don't want to overreact um, to some of uh, the transgender ideology by having these like rigid um, categories that we're trying to raise our sons and our daughters in. That if you have any kind of a, you you don't you don't fall within this narrow box. You know, that's just placing unnecessary pressures and expectations on people. But all of that said, I mean, the, the, the real tragedy here is that there are many young people who are being convinced by internet chat rooms, by gender experts, that their path to happiness is to go on testosterone. Their path to happiness is to have a double mastectomy. Um, and then, you know, five, 10 years later, they realize they made a mistake and they regret it. 
Um, one of the most courageous young people here is Kiara Bell um, in the United Kingdom, who at first successfully sued um, the UK healthcare system for what they did to her body. Uh, it's recently, she won the first round of the court battles. I think the hospital clinic has won the appeal. It's still being litigated. Um, but in the United States, there are no laws uh, governing this. It yeah. is entirely legal in all 50 states to place a minor, uh, a female, a minor girl on high doses of testosterone and to perform a double mastectomy on her. Mm -hmm. uh, and our tax dollars are paying for this. Um, two 13-year-old girls um, had double mastectomies performed on them um, at uh, a gender cl clinic um, in California as part of an NIH-funded study under the treatments for juvenile gender dysphoria, right? And, and, and this is just, it's medically, it's, it's unethical, right? It's a violation of medical ethics. Uh, it's a violation of the child's um, body. Uh, and I think increasingly we're going to see young people um, speak out uh, that they were too young to make these life-altering decisions and that they weren't ever really given quality medical care to explore the underlying conditions that led to their desire to yeah. transition, or even before they even had a desire to transition that led to their confusion about who they were as a boy or a girl, what the expectations were of boyhood and girlhood, of manhood and womanhood, uh, that those questions weren't even being explored. Many people report that, you know, they're given a one-way ratchet, which is that your only option is transitioning. And many parents have told me that they were told by doctors, well, would you rather have a dead daughter or a living son? Uh, and it's an emotional guilt trip. It's emotional blackmail that if you don't place your daughter on testosterone, she'll commit suicide mm. where there's no evidence to support such a claim. Yeah. But many parents um, are being told this. Yeah. And, and that really stood out to me about those detransition stories was just the anger that was being expressed. And, the, and by the way, for people who haven't read the book. Uh, many of the people who expressed their or shared their detransition stories are not people who are necessarily against transition in all cases. Uh, but they were reacting really in anger by how quickly the doctors and the medical professionals in their lives were pushing them toward transition without exploring, hey, was there sexual trauma in your past? Was Why are you wanting to do this? Because in, in several cases, as you mentioned, someone maybe just was experiencing same-sex attraction and was confused by that. And then now there's permanent changes done to their bodies. And so I think it's so important that we listen to, to those voices. I'm talking with Dr. Ryan Anderson about his book, When Harry Became Sally, Responding to the Transgender Moment. We're going to move to Q&A in just a moment. So we're going to give you guys the opportunity to ask your questions live on YouTube and in our Facebook book club group. Uh, if you missed the beginning, uh, we just read through this book for our Facebook book club group. If you want to join our club, you can go to facebook.com groups slash Alisa Childers book club, and you can request membership there. Uh, take a look at the belief uh, statement and the group rules. If you agree to those things, we'd love to have you join us. We read some great books and have some great discussions and then typically get to end our book study with an interview with the author, which is what we're doing right now. So if you want to ask a question for Dr. Anderson, please write the word question in all caps, and we will get to as many as possible. Uh, before we get to our first uh, question from, from our, our, uh, li our listeners and viewers today, uh, Dr. Anderson, um, 
I just want to ask you one thing about puberty blockers. So when a young mm. person expresses maybe gender dysphoria or even kind of questioning their, their gender identity, and then they're put on puberty blockers, what is the hope? What's the end game of that uh, in the mind of the medical professionals? What, what are they hoping to achieve by doing that? Yeah, so, um, I mean, officially what they all say is that a puberty blocker is like hitting a pause button. And it's meant to give the child time and space to decide whether or not they want to continue transitioning. Although like in empirical reality, um, it seems like virtually 100% of the children placed on puberty blockers end up transitioning. Because rather than being a pause button, it seems to function more like a lock in button. Um, because let's say you take a nine-year-old boy who doesn't quite feel comfortable um, being a boy because you know he doesn't quite fit in for whatever reason. And then you prevent him from going through puberty, but all of his male classmates and friends go through puberty, right? And so they hit their growth spurts, their muscles develop, their voice deepens, and he doesn't. It's only going to um, uh, extenuate and you know deepen his sense of alienation from his body, his, his self-perception that he's not a real boy. Um, and so that's part one. Part two is that, you know, some, several of the doctors who I've spoken with uh, have said that they fear that it's a self-fulfilling prophecy because it may very well be going through male puberty might be the developmental pathway that would help him reconnect with his bodily reality. Mm. That when he hits his growth spurt, when his voice develops, when his musculature um, develops, et cetera, et cetera, that's what's going to help him feel comfortable as a boy. Uh, and that you're actually blocking the pathway that would allow for this while locking in a form of dysphoria when he does his comparison um, to others. Um, parents are being told that it's just a pause button. They're being told that it's fully reversible, which isn't even true because even if, let's say you went on puberty blockers for five years and then you went off them, that doesn't reverse five years of delayed development, right? Nothing in a developmental a biological process can be reversed. You can just hope that it recommences when you go off of the puberty blockers. And they're not even really sure about, you know, how much of that recommencing uh, will take place. You know, what does it mean to go through a developmental process at age 15 that you were supposed to go through at age 10? We also have no real idea what it will mean long-term to have never gone through your biologically appropriate puberty. Uh, so for the children who are being placed on puberty blocking drugs, who are then going on to cross sex hormones, because the reason they do the cross sex hormones next is that you're now a teenager trapped in a child's body. And so they give you the opposite sexes, um, sex hormone that try to initiate the pubertal development that corresponds to your gender identity. But we have no idea what this will mean uh, long-term. I mean, we know what it means for your fertility, right? Mm -hmm. You will be infertile. If you go through puberty lacking drugs and you go on cross-sex hormones, then your actual reproductive capacities will not develop. And that means you will be infertile. It could also um, possibly mean that you will never experience any uh, real sexual desire or sexual uh, pleasure. Um, but beyond that, we have no idea what it means for your long-term uh, bone health, bone mm -hmm. growth, bone density. We don't know what it means for your various organs that develop. I mean, it's not just, um, uh, uh, for, for that matter, brain development. It's not just your sexual capacities that develop during puberty, 
but it's a whole cascading, interlocking, coordinated system of both physical and psychological development. Yeah. And we have no, it's, it's purely experiment. We have no idea what it's going to mean to be 40 years old and to have never gone through puberty. Wow. Uh, what that's going to mean for heart disease, for lung disease, for brain development, brain function, uh, uh, and uh, uh, sexual function, which we kind of do have a clear idea on. But the rest is, and it's and it's negative there. And then the rest is just an open question. So this is an experimental form of medicine being conducted on minors uh, where they necessarily can't consent because yeah. no um, prepubescent child, let I mean, even for that matter, no teenager fully knows what they're giving up. Uh, they don't know how meaningful it's going to be when they're in their 20s and their 30s and they're carrying their child in their womb mm. or when they're nursing their baby at their breast. And so there's going to be a, a cohort of young people who 10 years from now are going to be regretting this and saying, why did the adults let this happen to me? Why didn't anyone yeah. speak out? Why didn't anyone step in? Right. And so uh, to answer your earlier question, I mean, that was part of what motivated me in doing the book. I'd already done the books about marriage and about religious liberty. And so my thought was, look, everyone who is going to hate me already does hate me. I will not make any new enemies <laughs> in writing this book. So I, I actually have like, um, you know, I've kind of made my bed. It's time to lie in it. Like, this is my vocational trajectory. I have the freedom to write a book like this when many other people don't. There were a lot of medical doctors and lawyers who helped me with like the, the medical science and with the legal aspects of this discussion where they said, don't ever mention my name. Don't thank me in the wow. acknowledgement and don't even tell your friends that I helped because of their fear for professional repercussions. And, you know, I had, you know, in, in hindsight, the good fortune that I was already kind of um, uh, outspoken on some of these issues that it gave me the freedom um, to weigh in on this issue. And so what I hope to do is encourage other people to say, look, it's worth the cost. Um, yeah. There might be some short-term negative consequences uh, for me speaking into this issue. Um, but if we don't speak into it, who else will? Yeah, that's right. All right, we're gonna go to some questions from our book club here. This is uh, this one's from Hilary Ferrer uh, of Mama Bear Apologetics. And she wants to know, would transgender ideologues openly admit that they're using the stereotypes as their unchangeable standard on which everything else is based? I mean, do they realize this? Is this something they're actually saying, yeah, we, we admit we're doing that? I mean, yes and no. And this is where if you, um, um, if you follow some of the um, online discussions, these have been referred to as the turf war, where turf is a, um, it's, it's a slur being used at, to my mind, very heroic, courageous uh, women, uh, feminists, who are critical of um, transgender ideology. And so the transgender ideologues have come up with the phrase trans-exclusionary radical feminists, so T-E-R-F, TERF, um, to describe these women. Uh, and now look, these women, we disagree about a whole, you know, we disagree about abortion, we disagree about gay marriage, we disagree about other things. And we've agreed to say, all right, we're going to set aside all those disagreements and we're going to work together on an area where we do agree, which is that biology is not bigotry and that our um, embodiment as male or female is not a form of discrimination um, and that um, uh, those who are creating a new gender ideology based on an internal sense of gender 
they're the ones that are reinforcing the stereotypes, right? And so many of these uh, feminists are, you know, kind of in the second wave of feminism where they say, look, we have fought for the past 30 years against outdated gender stereotypes. And now we see um, when Caitlyn Jenner goes on the cover of Vanity Fair, you know, he's reinforcing all of these uh, gender stereotypes about what a real woman is supposed to look like, right? When, um, when Jenner wins the Woman of the Year award, to their mind, this is just reinforcing the misogynistic culture that they've been combating because now men are even better at women at being women when they're yeah. winning the woman. And so, I mean, I, I, I don't think the trans advocates would say that their worldview is based on stereotypes. But many feminists see the same thing that I'm seeing, right? So you don't need to be a conservative Christian or anything like that to have the same exact analysis of what's going on um, for this aspect um, of our culture. Yeah, and, and that sort of leads into this next question. This is from Lisa in our book club. She wants to know, how, uh, how do trans activists rationalize the fact that male to female people are co-opting women's spaces, sports, et cetera, but no, or at least I would say, you know, little to no women to men trans people are arguing to compete in male-dominated sports teams or even try to be on the male teams, period. Yeah, um, so some of them just deny it. Um, you will see, um, including, I mean, like the ACLU most, I mean, like you'll see both like left-wing progressive law firms and, um, you know, umbrella LGBT activist groups just deny that there's any problem. They're saying that there is no, you know, safety or privacy concern where when males are allowed into female private spaces like bathrooms, um, you know, I, I live in Loudoun County, Virginia. We've been in the news recently because our school board meetings you know, keep erupting into um, riots. You know, the Loudoun County um, School Board and the Loudoun County School System tried to cover up the fact that a 14-year-old girl was raped at a school bathroom by a boy wearing a skirt who went into the girl's bathroom. Uh, and then that student was transferred to another school where he sexually assaulted another student, right? And so some of them will just deny that it's a problem. Um, they will deny that um, males who identify as females have athletic advantages. They'll deny that. Um, I think the most recent figure I saw was that, you know, there were, I think, over 300 inmates in California, males who asked to be transferred to the female jail, while it was, I think, five or six females who asked to be transferred to the male jail. Uh, and then if I remember correctly, and, and, and this, I, I'm working on, you know, foggy memory, but if I remember correctly, there's a female inmate who is now pregnant um, because of this, right? Um, so there are there's asymmetry between male and female body when it comes to safety, when it comes to privacy, when it comes to athletic competition. And so some activists just want to deny that. Uh, and they all say that it's all kind of like conservative fear-mongering. Um, there was a great report just put out maybe two or three weeks ago by the Independent Women's Forum just looked at the um, male and female bodies with respect to athletic competition and, you know, the, the manifold different ways. Um, and again, it's not just testosterone level because other people say, well, look, it's not a problem because if, um, if a, a female who is now identifying as a male or let's take the other case, a man who is now identifying as a woman, if he just blocks his testosterone and he goes on estrogen, the advantage will be taken away. Not true his bones are still gonna be longer if he went through male puberty. 
His lung capacity is still going to be higher if he went through male puberty. His musculature is still going to be different because musculature is frequently um, uh, dependent on on bone size, right? Your your muscle has more bone to attach to, et cetera, et cetera. And so, and they just go kind of chapter and verse of all of the various ways in which this takes place. I have yet to see um, uh, kind of like trans activists honestly wrestle with these realities. Mm. This next question is from Janelle, and she's asking, how can we address this with uh, a, you know, progressive Christians who are affirming of LGBTQ uh, plus, knowing that the goal of the enemy is to destroy the image of God in us? How can we discuss this with people who call themselves Christians who are affirming these types yeah. of things? Um, I think you need to come at it from um, um, a multidisciplinary perspective, right? So I think you, you, you need to come at it from the theological um, you need to be, you know, very clear about what the Bible says about us being made male or female, being made in the image and likeness of God. Like, you know, get your um, theology solid. And, and on this, I mean, uh, um, uh, uh, two good books um, have come out uh, that I can recommend. One's Andrew Walker's book from a couple of years ago titled God and the Transgender Debate. And if I remember correctly, a, a second edition has just come out. And then another one is... Um, Oh, geez, I'm blanking on the title and I have it upstairs on my end table. Um, it'll come back to me later. Um, okay. And the title is something like, like, you know, um, what does it mean to be embodied or what are our bodies for? What does it mean to be male and female? Um, it'll come to me later. But there, there are two good books, at least, that I can think of on the theological. And then I think you also want to be prepared to talk about the science, the medicine, um, the, 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 the kind of like legal outcomes in terms of public policy. And in addition to my book there, I'll also mention Abigail Schreier's book, Irreversible yes. Damage. And Abigail just focuses in on the rapid onset gender dysphoria and what's happening with kind of teenage and 20 something, um, girls and women. Um, so whereas like my book is, is, you know, taken on the whole phenomenon um, children and adults, the, the science, the medicine, the philosophy, the law, you know, Abel's book is very focused on, um, uh, uh, on the rapid onset gender dysphoria with, um, uh, girls and women. And then a third book is just called trans by Helen Joyce. Um, and she's, um, you know, she refers to herself as a liberal. Um, she's an editor with the UK, um, weekly, um, the economist. Uh, I recently wrote a re review of it. I, I think it's very good on some aspects of this um, discussion, but I think it doesn't have a deep enough metaphysical uh, foundation. And I just think that's going to be the difference between, you know, how far you can get um, while being a committed liberal. You know, she celebrates being pro-choice and being in favor of the redefinition of marriage. And, you know, those are just things that, you know, I think actually lead somewhat to this. Mm. The, the, the rhetoric, my body, my choice, as applied to abortion, leads right into my body, my choice with respect to gender identity. Yeah. Right? And, this, and this, so if, one of the criticisms I made of, of her book was that if you aren't willing to recognize um, the value, the worth, the dignity of the unborn child's biological reality, well, we think we have to recognize all of that when it comes to my biological reality. And if my desire to transition impacts your biological reality, why does your biological reality trump my internal desires or my internal identity when we've just said that the biological reality of the unborn child 
doesn't trump the my body, my choice mantra for the woman uh, who doesn't want to carry the child, right? And so um, that said, the book's worth reading. It's very helpful. It's a courageous book, given that, um, you know, the, the author Helen Joyce is not winning friends uh, with this um, on the left, right? For someone yeah. on the left to write a book like this, it's a very costly um, endeavor. And those last two books you mentioned, The Irreversible Damage and Trans, are both still available on Amazon. I just checked. <laughs> Get them while you can, folks. Um, okay. Well, and, and I mean, and, and just to mention there, I mean, Abigail Schreier had her book removed from Target. Oh, okay. um, and so it, it's, um, uh, there have been, I mean, I would say for people telling the truth, it seems like telling the truth in the transgender issue has been particularly difficult. Social media companies will censor uh, people's Twitter and Facebook account if they refer to people according to biological reality rather than um, a, a self kind of a, a subjective identity. Um, and um, yeah, and I'll just leave it at that. Like, yeah. it, it's actually I'll say one more thing. It strikes me as both a sign of strength and weakness. And what I mean by that, it's a sign of strength um, that those in favor of transgender ideology have the levers of power. You know, right now they are controlling government, they are controlling big business, they're controlling big tech, uh, and so it's a sign of strength that you know they can deplatform your book, they can censor you on social media, et cetera, et cetera. So that's the sign of strength and we shouldn't deny that. We shouldn't be kind of like Pollyannish about it, but it's also a sign of weakness because they feel they have to. Why do they think they have to censor books, censor speech? Because they're afraid they would lose the debate on the merits, yeah. right? Amazon is afraid of my book because it thinks if your book club reads it, it'll persuade people, it'll convict people, It'll deepen people's knowledge and understanding on this issue so then they can persuade people. I mean, like, it's ultimately a sign of weakness um, when you have to resort to these forms um, of censorship. And I'm just personally curious, when Amazon removed your book, how did that affect your overall sales? Well, so um, I think in the short run, it's probably led to um, a spike in sales. You know, I, I haven't I thought maybe that was you know, case, seen what yeah. the numbers will be for this number, but I, but I think there was like a Streisand effect, um, which is, you know, when when you have like that negative, uh, when, when you try to um, uh, lower someone's visibility, you actually end up elevating them. And yeah. so, you know, it was a three-year-old book, but it got lots of free publicity you know, three years after publication date, which is, you know, unusual. We probably wouldn't be doing this interview if not for Amazon, if not for them, for the Wilberforce weekend, et cetera, et cetera. But I think long-term, that's what I think um, we in particular need to be focused about because right now we have to ask ourselves how many publishers are saying we won't even, you know, sign a book contract for an author who's going to write a book that tells the truth on this issue for fear of being locked out of the largest market in the globe, which is the Amazon market. Um, or, you know, how many authors are saying, I'm going to write a book, it's going to have 10 chapters looking at 10 different controversial issues, one of which is going to be gender identity, mm, maybe not, because if I write that chapter, my publisher might not give me a book deal, or Amazon might not sell the book. And so I think there's a, um, there's going to be a self-censoring uh, phenomenon because of this, right? And so we shouldn't be blase either about, you know, what the impact of, um, you know, a business form of censorship when the business controls, I think Amazon has something like 70 
to 80% of the adult nonfiction book sales in America. So if you're an adult and you're buying like, you know, a, a, a nonfiction book, the vast majority of the time you're getting it on Amazon. So if Amazon says just upfront, we're not going to even be selling your book. And then the fear for the publisher and the author is, and I'm not going to get the Streisand effect. I'm not going to get to go on TV or cable or whatever. Um, so I think that's the longer term concern that we should be really um, uh, um, kind of attentive to. And then I also just like personally am wondering, you know, what will the long term impact on kind of like my professional reputation be? Right. Cause it strikes me that, you know, Amazon did this deliberately as a way of discrediting me, mm -hmm. right. Saying that, you know, Ryan's not a thoughtful, serious scholarly guy. Ryan's an extremist. He's a bomb thrower, blah, blah, blah. Um, yeah. So we'll see. Yeah. Uh, Melanie wants to know, do you see uh, an end to this trend or do you see the tide turning at all? Um, yes. I mean, so, the subtitle of the book is, you know, responding to the transgender moment. And that was intentional. I didn't come up with the phrase transgender moment. There have been, um, I think the very first footnote in the book is um, it's technically an end note. So you have to flip to the end notes. I like footnotes because they're right on the same page, but the publisher prints these things with end notes now because it's easier to format books that way. But I, if I remember correctly, the very first end note um, is to that phrase transgender moment. And it cites like, I don't know, a dozen different newspaper articles, both on the left and the right, both secular media and religious media, referring to there's a transgender moment. Um, with the rise of transgender characters on TV, with the rise of transgender public policies, they were saying the trans moment has arrived. And my thought was, all right, I'm going to use that, but I'm going to use it intentionally to suggest and you know, then argue in the book that this moment will pass. And then what's up to us is, well, how long before the moment passes? Will it be a short moment in human history or will it be, you know, a long moment? And I think there actually, there's some good signs. There are um, doctors willing to speak out today who weren't there four years ago when I was researching this book. There are networks of parents who have organized um, to push back on this. Um, there are networks of doctors who are saying, look, I think for a certain sort of adult, sex reassignment procedures may be their best um, option. I don't think that means they're actually the opposite sex. I don't think that means they're trapped in the wrong body. These doctors would say, look, they're a man, but they have such severe alienation from their bodies and such severe dysphoria. The only way we can effectively treat it is by transforming their body. That doesn't actually make them a woman, but it reduces um, the aspects of their body that causes them the dysphoria, right? There are doctors who are willing to, you know, say that about adults saying, but we shouldn't be doing any of this for children. You know, children still have the greatest chance reconciling with their bodies. Children are too immature to be doing this. Um, and I actually think some of those people can be particularly effective uh, in speaking out. Um, against what's happening to children right now. Um, I think there are um, likely to be um, some medical malpractice lawsuits, class action lawsuits, um, as a result of the detransitioners um, saying that what happened to them was unjust and should be illegal. Um, and then I think eventually what we're going to see is that insurance companies and the lawyers for hospitals say this is a huge liability uh, hanging over our heads. 
So um, I do think there's hope here. But again, like the, the, the way that I phrase it in the book is that, you know, it's going to be up to us how long or how short uh, this moment lasts based upon mm -hmm. whether or not we respond to the moment. Yeah. Well, we've got a few minutes left here. Let, we'll try to get through a couple more of these. This is from Alana, and she wants to know, what can parents with children in public school do about this? And how can we be informed about what is being taught in our schools? Um, great question. Um, a couple of thoughts. Um, I'm increasingly, well, I, I, I'm going to rephrase this. It depends on your district. But in many school districts, I'm increasingly coming to the conclusion that if you have the capacity to find an alternative um, to government-run schools, that may be your best bet. Um, but I'm also very aware that that's not possible for all parents or even for most parents, right? If both of you have to work to make ends meet, if neither of you is you know, particularly well-educated where you could be doing homeschooling or a co-op or there's not an affordable kind of like private uh, or Christian school option, then I just think this is your only option. And then we, we just need to make the best of a bad situation. Uh, and then I think being proactive, being involved at the PTA meetings, being involved in the school board meetings, um, partnering with public interest law firms and public policy organizations. Most every state has a state policy organization um, that's a socially conservative, um, kind of like a family policy office. Those organizations, like in Virginia, there's a, the Virginia Family Policy Council um, is very you know involved in what's going on in the state of Virginia more or less like every state has something like that um there are good law firms like alliance defending freedom they're representing both parents and teachers in loudon county right now over the transgender policies um and so i i think that you know getting involved at the local school getting involved at the school board um, i have a friend who ran for school board uh, in my county i have another friend who's currently running for school board in the next county over um, so I think it's going to have to be more involvement um, from uh, Christian parents, um, not less, right? And so, so it's yeah. simultaneously, it might be your best option if you can get your child out to get out. But also simultaneously, we can't abandon the students who are going to the public schools, right? We actually need yeah. to invest more into those discussions, um, more into the decision-making processes. And then I just think it's, you're going to need to also not only ask you know, the teachers, the principals, the administrators, what's going on at school, you need to ask your student, your child, right? Yeah. Where you say, I want you to tell me if your teacher ever talks about any of you, like, you need to have clear communication, lines of communication between parent and child, because your child's actually going to be your best eyes and ears about what's really going on. This is why I think COVID was actually kind of like, you know, a, a gift in disguise. Many parents for the first time saw just how radical what was being taught in the classroom was, right? I mean, their, their child was, you know, at Zoom school and they overheard what was being taught, whether it was CRT or gender theory. And, and both critical race theory and um, gender ideology spring forth from very similar roots in mm. critical theory. That was I mean, one we, of the questions somebody had that we didn't oh. get to. So I'm glad you mentioned that. Yeah. Yeah, well, I'll just mention very quickly. I mean, it comes from a series of like French and German um, uh, uh, thinkers that kind of make up kind of the um, like cultural Marxist um, uh, critical uh, uh, theory, but then also they deny some of the very same biblical truths, right? That were made in the image and likeness of God, and therefore we're all equal. That we're created male or female, right? Critical race theory and gender theory 
both attack those ideas because they want to do is they want to recreate identity based on like a victim class status. Uh, and so they deny the equality of all being equally made in the image and likeness of God. They deny being made um, male and female. Uh, and then what they do instead is try to create, you know, various hierarchies of power and of victimization, um, et cetera, et cetera. And so I think both really do strike to the core of the Imago Dei and our understanding of what it is to be human. Yeah. Well, Dr. Anderson, thank you so much for joining us for this live stream. What a rich discussion. We got to get to so many questions that I think, uh, you know, just everybody was coming up with as we were reading through your book. And um, so I'm going to let you go. We're going to say goodnight to you. I'm going to stay on with everyone for a few more minutes, let you know some things coming up. But uh, for now, thank you so much for joining us. What a pleasure and what an honor. And we hope to have you again soon. Great. Thank you. It was a, a pleasure to be with you tonight. Awesome. All right. Well, I want to thank my guest, uh, Dr. Ryan T. Anderson, author of the book, When Harry Became Sally, Responding to the Transgender Moment. And as I mentioned at the beginning of the recording here, uh, we have a book club on Facebook called the Elisa Childers Book Club. And if you want to join us, you can go to facebook.com slash groups slash Elisa Childers Book Club. And there's going to be a belief statement you need to agree to and a group rule kind of document that you need to agree to. And the reason for that is because the purpose of the group is for like-minded Christians to come together to read and discuss some great books. And we've already read and discussed some really great books. And then we typically get to have a live stream at the end uh, of our time studying the book with the book's author. And so uh, you can go ahead and join us now. The book, the club is now open. And in a couple of weeks, I'm going to be announcing our next book selection, which I'm really excited about. It's actually, I'll give you a little hint, uh, I, I think I've decided on what it is. And it's one of the books that I actually wanted to do way back at the beginning. We never got a chance to do it. So uh, join us over there if you're interested in growing in knowledge of things like apologetics and theology. I also want to let you know, if you're watching this uh, on YouTube, please subscribe, uh, click like, comment, share it. It always helps. If you're listening on audio platforms, this will be published to our podcast uh, next week, probably. You know, if you if you leave a five-star review on iTunes, that always helps. We've got some really great interviews and shows coming up. We're going to be doing a, another show on spiritual abuse from the perspective of someone who has walked through it. And we're going to be touching on more of the emotional side of things with spiritual abuse. We're going to be doing a live stream next month with Jack Marino. Some of you remember she came on the podcast to tell her story of walking out of the occult. She's coming back on to do a Q&A. So you, we are going to do virtually all Q&A from YouTube and Facebook. So join us for that. Be looking for that. We're going to be talking with Lee Strobel is going to be joining us on the podcast here real soon. So we've got some really great stuff coming up. Thank you so much for watching tonight. Um, it's been just a, a great discussion. Always great to be with you. And we will see you next time.